We're going, going to, in our live services, we're not going to look at John, we're going to look at the book of Ezra. Now, I started Ezra just before lockdown and uh, did two sermons in the evening. I'm going to repeat those and uh, come back to them now uh, because they are so pertinent for this moment. And Ezra is about the people of God returning, having been... Uh, uh, in exile, having been away from their homeland, having been imprisoned, if you like, having been away from where they uh, were used to worshipping, having seen and lost all that they had. Now, after we've done this, Kath is going to come, and because uh, lots of you have enjoyed questions of life, we're going to give you a little flavour of that. And Kath's going to uh, try and tease out some of the things that people are asking or, or that haven't been mentioned. So if you want to text a question to her that she can ask me later, uh, try and make it relevant to this subject. Uh, I think we've had a few gratuitous texts which aren't going to be of any use or value. So if you want to send something that's helpful, that would be really good. And uh, or you can... whenever I do Old Testament stuff, and uh, apologies, if you've been in our church, you'd have seen this next slide many, many times. And it may even be that you know it, which in which case it has worked. But for many of us, we still can't quite work out where all the different things in the Old Testament fit. And if you're like me, then you're confused. As I always say, you're confused by the fact that before Christ, the, 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 the numbers go the other way. So 1900 is the furthest away and zero is the nearest, which gets confusing when you look at people's dates because they're back to front, if that makes sense. So if we start at the call of Abraham, and uh, may, you may or may not know where everything fits in, but God takes Abraham and he invites him to be a blessing to the nations. He has uh, his son Isaac, uh, and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the hairy one. Jacob, um, it takes the promise, and Jacob has 12 sons, including Joseph, who goes off uh, into Egypt and makes a musical. And out of that, uh, there are... the the 12 brothers end up at the end of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. They end up in Egypt and they become a nation there and eventually they are enslaved and then comes Moses and he comes and sets them free. And Ezra has a number of parallels with Moses because Ezra is about rebuilding and setting people free. And uh, you'll see that they've got themselves into a mess again. We'll come to that in a moment. So they go into the promised land and Joshua uh, fights the battle of Jericho. There's a number of different people who lead the people of God. They're called the judges and uh, people like Gideon and so on. And then uh, the last judge is a guy called Samuel, who's also a prophet. Samuel anoints the first king, who's Saul, who's then uh, replaced by David. David has a son called Solomon. Solomon builds the temple. But after Solomon, there is division vision in the people of God and the the one nation becomes two nations the north with 10 tribes is called Israel and the south uh, with uh, two tribes is called Judah Jerusalem is in Judah um, but there are more people in the north in Israel and these two nations go their separate ways but they are common in that they both kind of disobey and argue and, and with God and they, they, they follow all kinds of idols. And the result of that is that God sends a load of prophets to warn them. 
and uh, Israel first off takes less notice than Judah and eventually God says, I can't work with you, I can't protect you, I can't use you to do all that I wanted to do. And they lose their place and they're overrun. The people are dispersed. Some of them go down to Judah, um, but they cease to be uh, in God's purposes and plans. And that's a huge tragedy. And you would think that Judah would learn the lesson of this, but they don't. And they are also sent other prophets to warn them. Um, And they still don't take any notice. So God says, look, I need you to understand the seriousness of doing what I want you to do and of following me. And so he allows them to be overrun. And they are removed by their occupying army, the Babylonians, and they are removed and taken to Babylon. Bit by bit, they go into what's called the exile. And this is a key moment in uh, understanding the Bible because many, many people today believe that the exile, the parts of the Old Testament that relate to the exile, are some of the most relevant passages of Scripture for Western Christianity for the UK church, for the church in America uh, and other parts of Europe. There is a great sense of these passages resonating with us. So they go into exile and uh, whilst they're there, Jerusalem is completely ransacked and the temple is destroyed. Now they felt that was impossible because the temple was a symbol of God's presence and they believed that God would never let it be destroyed. And so it's completely devastating to them that it's destroyed. And Ezra begins to lead a group of people back. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Ezra chapter 1. Now, the Babylonian Empire has waned and been taken over by the Persian Empire. And Cyrus is the king of Persia at this moment. And he says, this is the beginning of Ezra chapter 1, Ezra's first words, in the first year of the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Which makes me want to go, well, what is the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah? And it's that verse that I read to you right at the beginning of our service. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you and bring you back to this place. And I think Ezra resonates with us because it's a story that we can identify with. They've been shut out of the place they were familiar with. They've been shut out of being able to worship with others. They have been strangers in a strange land. And God says to Jeremiah, I will bring you back at some point. And the point is this, that uh, consequence and difficulty will not last forever. The consequence of their sin, the difficulty that they find themselves will not last forever. What we are going through will not last forever. Nothing lasts forever, not even the feeling that nothing lasts forever. And sometimes we forget that. We can feel stuck and feel and lose hope and feel this is all there is. But the interesting thing about this Jeremiah passage is that the next verse is a passage that many of us know and have probably quoted out of context loads and loads of times. 
See, the next passage isn't really a word specifically to an individual. It's a word to a group of people. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It isn't really said to Jeremiah. It's said by Jeremiah to the people. For I know the plans I have for you. And lots of you will know that I feel it's very significant that the word is plural, it's plans. That there are a variety of things that God wants to lead us into. And we have our choice, we have a freedom, an option to say, no, I don't want to go with you. And time and time again, we see through the Old Testament, that's what happened to Israel. They said no. There was a plan and a purpose for the people of God, for the whole 12 tribes. But 10 of them said no. So there are plans for us, there are options, and they can be rejected, I believe. They can be turned against. And we see the tragedy of what happens to the northern country. Unless we're thinking, well, do I want to go with God's plans or do I want to go with my way? Unless we're trying to work out our mind, we need to see the rest of this passage because he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And this is really important, that what God has for us is good. It's good because it has tomorrow in, uh, in its heart. It's about hope. It's about moving us forward to a better place. It is about future. And whatever we've been through, God has plans for us individually and corporately as a church, plans that are good because they are plans of hope. Plans for something new. And these plans are for relationship. Then you will call on me and come to me, pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. It's glorious that God says you'll find me, you'll know me, you'll be able to sense me, you'll be able to talk to me. There is a restoration. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations. I will gather you from the places I have banished you. Remember, they were in exile because of their disobedience, because they had not gone with what God wanted. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. I, uh, as you know, I love cartoons, and uh, I discovered a cartoonist called Michael Lunig, I think that's how you pronounce his name, and I used one in a wedding uh, on Thursday, uh, and this is another cartoon. It, it, it's slightly tangential, um, so you might need a little explanation, um, but let me just read it to you. Uh, chap says, in my life, I have accumulated I had accumulated in my head too many things. I don't know if you, whether you feel your head is full. I often feel my head is full. My hard drive is stuffed in my brain and new things don't go in. I know songs and footballers from the 1970s, which is completely useless to me, and I forget things from today. He says, my head has too many things in it. Memories, tunes, facts, fears, visions, loves, etc., etc. as many as possible. In a fertile mind, such things would interbreed. Visions are born, hybrid memories, inbred, idiot love. It gets very confusing. 
I don't know whether you feel muddled, confused, all of the, the different things in the news at the moment, doing some saying good news, some saying bad news, some trying to get us to do this, some trying to get us to do that, social media piling in with all kinds of different things that we're supposed to believe, conform to, wear, think, or do. It gets very confusing. And so he says, I decided it was time for a good clean-up, so I emptied it all out of my head and pushed it up into a big heap to sort it out. as a big heap of his mind. And there it was, everything that was me, all in a big jumbled heap, and I walked around it. What a mess. And uh, some of us would think, oh, this cartoon doesn't make any sense to me, but it, it, maybe I'm the only one. It kind of resonated with me. This is my head, it's just a mess. And he goes on, he says, Then suddenly I saw it in a, sil it in a silhouette, and I realised what it was. It was a heap, a simple heap. You don't sort it out, you climb it. You climb it because it's there. Excitedly, I clambered to the summit and, and raised the flag, and I was now looking beyond everything that I knew. God has plans and purposes for you and I that are beyond the confusion that we feel, that are not about making sense necessarily of everything that's going on or has happened or will happen, but of just looking forward. And he concludes, the view was simply magnificent. God has good plans to bring us back. And what that means is that we don't give up. We hold on. We hang on to that relationship. We hold on. And we seek him. He says, I will be found if you look to me. Seeking is something that we proactively do. It's not that everything is given to us on a plate, but that we look for God. So what plans might God have for us to cooperate with? Second part of this sermon. Oh, no, before I get to that, another great cartoon. If you haven't yet bought this book, I really encourage you. Of all, I don't know whether you're allowed to call this a cartoon book. It isn't really. Uh, it's a book. Well, anyway, if you haven't read and found this book, I really commend it to you. Charlie Maxey, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. If you do buy it, it's one of those books that if you put on your bookshelf, you'll look cool um, because it's the book to have at the moment. And within this, it says this, sometimes, says the horse. Sometimes what, said the boy. Sometimes just getting up and carrying on is brave and magnificent. We look forward. He's got good plans for us. The second part of this passage that I want to bring before we sing and calf then uh, nails, drills down into some of it. In the first year, the Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. What does it mean that God moves the heart? Cyrus changes his mind. He uh, has a different thinking and feeling than he had before. Something is felt that leads to a decision that leads 
to him making a proclamation. He declares a law, if you like, uh, that the people are, should be allowed to go back to their own countries. So there's a decision and then there's an action because he then follows through and he lets people go. And that's the, the, the resonance, or not the, I keep using the word resonance, got to stop it. That is the parallel with Pharaoh because Pharaoh is told to let the people go and he doesn't. So could Cyrus have resisted? Well, all kinds of theologians fall down on different sides and can debate and argue it. Um, my own view is that he could have resisted and then we don't know what would have happened, but God was going to do it. There were kind of been all kinds of problems for Cyrus. As it was, he didn't resist. But if he had, would it have been worse for him? But he doesn't. There is an action. He calls and sets people free. And when God is going to do something, we have a choice to be a Cyrus or a Pharaoh. We have a choice to cooperate or we have a choice to resist. And if we don't cooperate, we will find that God moves on and that life becomes problematic. It's what happens to the northern state. It's what happens to Pharaoh. And even there's removal. And we've seen churches that once were vibrant that now are closed. Somewhere along the line, leaders took a decision not to go with where God was and with what he was saying and doing. And God moves. Let's make it our prayer that that isn't our experience. So here's the decree. We're going to look at that a little bit later in another uh, sermon uh, in a week or two's time where he, he just sets out this law that people, uh, um, verse for any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold. They're to give them money to go back and rebuild the temple. It's an amazing proclamation that he makes. Does this make him godly? Probably not. The rest of history tells us that Cyrus was, was not a great guy. He was quite bloodthirsty. However, God can use the ungodly for his purposes. But I want to focus on that phrase, that God moved the heart of Cyrus because he then moves the heart of individuals. This phrase is used again. The families, the head of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And just as we draw to a close, some thoughts around this phrase. The first thing is to notice that he doesn't move everybody's heart on the first day. They return over a number of years, over decades. God, at different points, moves people to go back to the temple. And that's our experience. You're the early adopters. You're the first through the door. That doesn't mean that we look at those who are more nervous or apprehensive. We don't look at them uh, as being inferior or less faithful than us. They're just different. God has moved our hearts to be here. And not everyone is moved in the same way by God. And one of the big problems that we get ourselves into is when we project and expect everybody else to respond to God in the way we have. And to do what we do, because in some way we kind of think that validates us as being right if everybody else does it. But the good news is that God uses us as individuals. 
and that he does things with different people. Some of us are passionate about this thing. Some of us are passionate about that thing. Some of us are passionate about the next. And that's the way God makes it. One of the great things about our church is all the variety of passions and enthusiasms. And together, we form God's heart. But individually, some of us are really passionate about this thing or that thing. We can't understand where everybody else isn't. And uh, sometimes I feel, I've said to you before, sometimes I feel my role is like riding about 20 different horses bareback at the same time, trying to manage all these different enthusiasms. And each one is wondering why I'm not solely riding their horse. But actually, it's saying God has given you this vision. He's moved your heart. Go with it. But don't blame the others who God is moving in a different way. So how is a heart moved? Firstly, it begins with the repetition of God's voice, that God says things again and again and again. Always test and weigh, not God, but us, because I'm not so good at hearing God, and I doubt that you are either. We just test it, we weigh, we listen, we keep on. God says things through lots of different ways. And it begins with an awareness, an awareness of an idea, an awareness of a thought, an awareness of a plan, awareness of a conviction. And that, as the heart is moved, it creates some kind of emotional response. Not, I'm not talking about tears necessarily. I'm talking about something perhaps like compassion or anger or a sense of urgency. The heart is moved. The feeling is being moved. And, and it's happening. The bigger the issue, the longer it takes, and, and the more it doesn't go away. And as we do that, our action becomes clear. Cyrus knew what he had to do. They knew what they had to do. And if we think God is moving our hearts and we don't yet know what to do, wait, because if it's God, it will become clear. Don't rush into something that we're not quite certain of. Wait for the clarity. And it might be to just really pray into something. It might be to give to something. It might be to change our attitude towards somebody or something. It may be an action as it was for these people that he's saying, go and do this. It may be as we're in this uh, place now, you, you know what that thing is. You know how God is moving your heart and you're beginning to know or you already know what it is you need to do. And when the heart is moved, there, be, there gains a willingness to obey. It becomes what we want. It becomes the desire of our heart. It doesn't become something that we uh, resentfully do. If it's something we're resenting doing, it isn't yet God moving the heart. He's changing the heart. What that means is the heart feels differently. That which the heart used to think wasn't what we wanted to do has now become what we do want to do. And so it's allowing God to do that and say, I'm going to be different as God changes me. I'm not going to do something out of fear or guilt or shame or conformity. I'm doing something now because I want to do it. We want to pray. We want to give. We want to change our attitude. We want to act in a certain way. And the action becomes clear and important. So your IQ isn't as important as your I will. So, in a moment, we're going to sing a song, and then Kath is going to come and uh, ask some questions. If you've got a question you want to ask, you can text her now there. Uh, uh, if you can't text, there's an email, but if you can text, that's great.
A couple of questions for us to reflect on as Sam and the band rejoin me. How might God be moving our hearts? What is he doing for us individually? As he's bringing us back, as he's got good plans for us, how is he moving us? And maybe we're praying for somebody else. Maybe we're praying for someone who seems as resistant as Cyrus or the Pharaoh, who we can't imagine that they'll change their attitude, maybe to Jesus, maybe to us. Keep praying that God would move and they would respond. Lord, will you help us? Will you help us to follow the way you change our heart and protect us from turning away. Protect us from thinking that your plans are not good. Thank you that you want to give us a hope and a future. We turn our hearts to you. So the first one is, um, you're talking about how God is good and mm -hmm. how God has good plans for us and how God prompts us and leads us into the things that he wants us to do. So the first question is, what are some examples of things that God is calling us to cooperate with as a church, in your, your opinion, Donald? Good. <laughs> Whose idea was this? Uh, as a church or as individuals? Do both. Do both. Okay, as a church, I think God is calling us to reach out mm -hmm. and to, to care for people, to meet people in their brokenness, to meet people where they are, not expect people to be perfect to come into church, but to meet and walk alongside the broken and the hurting. That's not particularly something new, but I just that's in all my ministry here, that's where I think, can I move this so I can see people's faces over there? Do what you like, you're, you're in charge. Yeah, well. You just ruined the video, but that's Sorry, sorry fine. about that video. Yeah. Sorry, Reuben. <laughs> uh, I just think that, that God's moving our heart ever and ever outwards. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is really important. I think God is moving us collectively to be more and more prayerful. I think God is moving us, and particularly again through life, through the pandemic and live streams, I think God is moving us to be more and more grateful, mm. to be a people who are able to see beyond the bad and to see the good. I think as a church, God has moved us for generations, but is really pressing in on us again to reach young people. And I think that is absolutely crucial. So I think the God's, the plans and purposes for us are about that love, about that um, reaching out. Um, and I think that God is moving us now to encourage each other back into community, that the problem of uh, the pandemic is it's boxed us in isolated places where we've watched a screen and we can turn it off and go and do something else and we can uh, ignore it if we want. And I think God wants us in community amongst people who say, how are you? I really believe the significant power in eye contact. I think the significant power in, in relationship. And I think God is calling us as a people 
to rebuild, that if we allow our culture to descend into screen life, that's not good. It will damage us mentally and spiritually. We value the screen, we'll keep it going, but it's not enough. Uh, so, I don't know, that was individually? Yep. I think there are all kinds of things. People, uh, it may be around particular passions, particular issues, particular causes in the world that we think that matters. We want to give to that. We want to pray into that. We want to do that. I think God will move our heart towards individuals. Somebody will be on our mind to pray, to talk to, to invite, to forgive. I think that God puts on our heart and moves us to... Um, to become more like him, to be more Christ-like, to get rid of the stuff that's, that's not of Jesus that we live with. I don't know. I wonder if sometimes we can overcomplicate it. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you, you helpfully talked about having, uh, you know, you weigh yourself on all of these different things and keep praying and if it returns. And that's right for some things. Do you think other things, uh, actually, it's worth just do it because no harm is going to happen. It can only be a good thing to do if you get a, a sense of, I should do it. Just get on and do it. I think that's the key thing is in no harm. Yes. So I think that there are things that God prompts us to do every day that we don't get there. They're of that moment, so let's just yes. do them. But they won't be hugely consequential if yes. we get it wrong. Yes. The things that are hugely consequential, he will keep on saying, and he, will, he doesn't expect us to jump. And I think don't make big decisions in a moment. Don't take hours to make small decisions. If, yes. that, if that's the thing, do you know what I mean? Yes. If, if that person puts on your heart to talk to them now, don't pray for an hour as to whether you talk to them. Go and talk to them now. Yeah. If God's putting on your heart to move to another part of the world, take months and years to know that. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. I think sometimes you, you have to not overcomplicate the simple yeah. things. And if it's something that Jesus would do, if it's something straightforward, I think, don't overthink it and, yeah. and do it. Yep. So there are things in everyday life that, that we're prompted to do. Uh, some, as you say, are quite small. Some are, are quite major things. There's a couple of questions here that I'm going to tie in into one. The first is, what if we feel we've missed God's plan in our life? Then the second one, if we are repentant of our resistance to God's plans in our life, will he still stay with us? Absolutely. The, the, the glorious, beautiful thing about Jesus and, and the way we understand God through Jesus is the God who restores and redeems. There is no place, you can go to the farthest point of the, the world, there's no place we can go outside. And I think the plans are deliberately plural because I do believe that when we make poor choices and we mess up and we go over into different places, that when we, the point at which we can come, we come to God and say, here I am, I'm sorry, is the point, he says, okay, let's make some plans. They will use the gifts that he always gave us and he always intended to use, but he'll also use the experiences that he didn't intend for us and he'll use the places that perhaps he didn't intend us to be. I don't think that that... So I think that God has always got plans for us wherever we are. I, I, I tend to think that God is so great he's able to cope with more than one plan. And I've always thought the idea that there was one plan kind of limits God to being not quite as intelligent as I think he is. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that too blasphemous, but this idea <laughs> is that God's only got one plan. The moment he, we mess it up, he goes, oh, my word, what do I do with that? Mm. I think that God looks at us at every moment and says, well, now we can do this, now we can do that. 
So when we make poor choices, it may be that what God originally intended us is gone and it can't be recovered because time, relationships, all kinds of things. That doesn't mean that God can't use us as something that will be good. Mm-hmm. We can make such a mess of our lives that it will be second best. Mm-hmm. But second best is still great. Mm-hmm. And for most of us, it won't be second best. It will be as good as. And I really believe that, and I b- believe that's the power of God and the, 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 uh, the majesty of his wisdom that he can unravel the, the things we've, we've got ourselves into. What was the second part of the question? Uh, if we are repentant of our resistance to God's plans in our life, will he still stay with us? Absolutely. It, repentance... See, what we've got to remember is that God is not looking for a way to reject us. He's looking for a way to save us. That's the point of Jesus. He's come to save. He's not come to turn people away. He's looking and giving us every opportunity to come to him. So when we say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've messed up, he's going, right, great, now let's go. Mm. He's not going, well, I'm not sure you're sorry enough. Or, uh, you know, you've done this enough times. I don't know if I can, you know. That isn't the nature of God. The nature of God is to... Take what is weak and vulnerable and broken and put his glory into it like clay jars that are cracked. So um, there's never, never, never a point where he turns the repentant away. Never. Mm. The thief on the cross, there's a brilliant video you showed last week. The thief on the cross, you know, I'm here because the man said I could. That's, mm. that's the thing. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, we are, we are running out of time. Just Sorry. one last thing. No, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, we talk about God having this plan in the passage, uh, Jeremiah, uh, and is bringing it to fulfillment in, in the passage that we looked at. And he moves the heart of Cyrus, mm. okay, which is excellent. We don't think that Cyrus particularly had much of a faith. No. Uh, in fact, he didn't have a faith. Uh, and so I want to just pull two things out of that. Firstly, the encouragement that those of us that don't have a faith, or even those of us that do have a faith, but don't think that greatly of ourselves and have that much esteem in our faith, there is the encouragement that we can be prompted and used by God, and mm. I'll get you to talk about that. And then secondly, the interesting thing is the assumption then that God is at work in the lives of everybody, yeah. Yeah. and we don't always know, yeah. and how should that inform and affect our prayers for those for, for those people. So the first bit was about us maybe not feeling worthy and how God doesn't always use those that have a faith or the strongest faith. Absolutely, and there's loads of examples where God uses people I think he shouldn't. <laughs> me and you? Uh, me, yeah, well, me anyway. Ooh, uh, he, no. he, yeah, he, yeah. It's, it's amazing that God uses people. And I, and I think then, so, so none of us can be outside of that place saying yeah. I've, I'm useless. I, yeah. I'm my life doesn't match up. When our heart is for him, he can use us far more. Yes. And Cyrus was able to do one thing because God really needed it doing, and Cyrus was the only person that could do it. Mm. Whereas for us, with our heart, we can do more than that. Mm. What I do think it means is we don't have to have a Christian doctor, we don't have to have a Christian dentist, we don't have to have a Christian music on all the time, we don't have to read Christian books, we don't have to bubble ourselves in some Christian world where only Christians ever speak to us and we're terrified of listening to the world and what the world might Mm. say. 
The world might say a lot of rubbish, but the world will also have glimmers and glimpses of God at work that we can benefit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do worry about the sort of frightened Christianity that can't have anything to do with anyone who's not believing the same as us. And often that form of Christianity gets fractured as, well, they're not the, the right theology as me and the right denomination as me, so I can't listen to them. And you get scareder and scareder and scareder. And perfect love casts out all fear. And God is at work in our office, and he may speak to us through the people we think are the most ungodly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then just finally that little bit, the, the encouragement for us. I think as we sometimes look at people and we think, oh, they're never going to become a Christian. But this would seem to indicate that God is widely at work in people's mm. lives. And we're not to assume. But we should maybe be praying for an open heart and a sensitivity and a responsiveness to whatever God is doing and to have the eyes of faith to see it and yeah. run with what God yeah. is doing. Yeah. Uh, I imagine they, there were people who were taken into exile and thought, how on earth is Jeremiah's prophecy going to be fulfilled? Mm. We just pray. Mm. And as we pray, God does things. And we can pray for people and we think they're never going to change. Mm. They're never, their hearts will never be moved. But we just keep praying. And, I, and I, I don't know whether it's theologically accurate, but I kinda, I've often said I see prayer as like bringing a magnifying glass and the sunlight onto something, and it just gets hotter. Mm. And God gives more and more pushes and prompts to people to change their hearts the more we pray for them. Mm. So I'm, I'm a huge believer that we pray and that invites God to ask and push them even further to respond. Doesn't mean they necessarily will, but it gets trickier for them not to. Yeah. Brilliant. Excellent. Well okay. done. Thank you very much. Asked to clarify something that I said about uh, music and uh, whether it was okay for, to listen to worldly music. What I would say is this, just to clarify. If you listen to music and you know it takes you away from God, you know it makes you angry, or you know it makes you lustful, or you know it makes you materialistic, then don't listen to it. Be ruthless with yourself. If you listen to music and it actually helps you and encourages you and lifts you towards God, then listen to it. Whether it was sung by a Christian or not is not the issue. It's what it does to you that matters. So that's how I would leave that one. That's enough for me.